you would please join me once again in prayer. Lord, we have worshiped you in song. We have worshiped you in prayer. We have worshiped you through the reading of your word. Now, Lord, we pray that we would be able to worship you in spirit and truth as we listen to your word once again, Lord, as we study it. And so come, Holy Spirit, teach us. Take your word that you inspired and put it into our hearts that we might not sin against you and that we might glorify our master and savior all the more. We pray this in Christ alone, amen. If you will, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. It's going to help you immensely this morning if you have your Bibles or your Bible apps open to this passage rather than just relying upon the worship guide alone. Now, I know this might be a little difficult for you, but in between the final Advent service of Friday night and our introduction of our Psalm of the Year next week, I want to complete the final few verses of Matthew chapter 17. Now, I know that can feel a little bit jarring going back and forth in between books of the Bible, but I think it's appropriate that on the final Sunday of 2021, we will be able to close out this chapter. And we will resume Matthew again on the second Sunday of the year. But as it is, let me give you just a brief refresher on this gospel. In, in between the prologue and the passion narrative, the book of Matthew is divided into five major divisions. Each of these divisions are made up of one extended teaching of Jesus, followed by an extended description of the types of things that our Lord did within his ministry at that particular point in time. We're currently nearing the end of the fourth division. We started all the way back in chapter 13 with Jesus' extensive uses of parables. And there we saw that while many may perceive a moral to the stories that Jesus was telling, only the elect would be able to see the deeper meaning, or some might say the hidden or the spiritual meaning of the parable. Those granted the eyes to see and the ears to hear would gain the full comprehension of what Jesus was teaching. From there, Jesus travels further into the northern areas of Israel, even pushing past the borders of Galilee and entering into Gentile regions. And this is interesting because while Jesus is welcomed into these pagan areas, he begins to receive direct opposition from the Jewish authorities within his own homeland. Once again, those who are capable of seeing Jesus for who he is, they welcome him and they love him. And those who are incapable, they desire to undermine his ministry. And in the last few months of the year, we arrived at chapter 16 and 17, where we see that this hostility towards Jesus from the religious leaders begins to go to a crescendo here. And as it does, his disciples must make a conscious decision by faith to follow the Lord despite the opposition here. And now Jesus is going to make his way towards Jerusalem, knowing that the cross awaits him. After the Lord acknowledges that he is the Christ, he begins to enlighten his followers here in chapter 16 to his overall plans. And three times within these two chapters, he announces his intention. He must go to Jerusalem, not only to suffer, but to die. And this theme unites chapter 16 and chapter 17 into one unit. The first of these is found in chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The second is found in chapter 17, starting in verse 10. 
And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that at first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the final one is where we left off in Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus was not deceiving his disciples about what was coming. He was completely honest about what to expect. It would require great faith on behalf of the disciples if they would follow Jesus. This is why Jesus challenged them at the end of chapter 16, saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If they follow Jesus, here is what they can expect. Their Lord would suffer at the hands of the religious leaders going all the way up to the top to the high priest. His opponents would not only cause him great pain, but they would kill him. To follow Jesus has a cost. They will be ostracized by the very religion in which they were raised. They might even suffer physically, and some might even lose their lives. That doesn't sound very attractive, does it? But Jesus also promises that something else is going to happen that he will be raised from the dead on the third day. He pledges to his disciples there, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And stating further in this challenge in Matthew 16, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of, of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And at the first of chapter 17, three of his disciples get to witness the transfiguration of Jesus, and they see both Moses and Elijah, once assumed dead, they see them alive, which proves there is glory and eternal life to be obtained in Jesus. Amen. So throughout these passages, we have these pieces of the puzzle. Jesus going to his death. His disciples must follow by faith. Jesus promises he'll rise again with the hope of future glory. But what we're lacking here is the answer to the question, why? Why must Jesus do this? What is happening in his suffering and death that allows his disciples to gain a place in his kingdoms? To his disciples, Jesus seems to allude that his coming kingdom is much greater than just national Israel. It is spiritual as well as physical. And yet so far in the story, we don't yet have that piece of the puzzle, nor did his disciples. They could see Jesus as a great leader of men. After all, they were following him. But as we saw back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, his entire purpose was to come to save his people from their sins. And these final verses of Matthew 17 begin to address the why question. It's a curious little exchange between Simon Peter and Jesus, a, a conversation that, that's brought great confusion as to what's going on here. And I'm going to explain this to you under five different headings here. Location, question, taxation, obligation, and a miraculous catch. I'll give those to you again. Location, question, taxation, 
obligation and a miraculous catch. And for my alliteration friends, it may be driving you crazy here, so you can just go with sensational catch if that helps. I couldn't make it work otherwise. So So Matthew provides us with the location to begin with here at verse 24. And I just want to take a second to emphasize that I believe every word of the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. The inspired writers don't just provide us with superfluous data here. All of it is important, even if it's just background material for orientation. And that's what's happening here. We know from chapter 16, verse 13, that Jesus had been in the region of Caesarea Philippi, a Gentile area. And he had been in the hills of the borderlands of national Israel. And while Jesus had been on the Mount of Transfiguration with the three, we had good reason to assume that the disciples had resumed their itinerant ministry given back to them back in chapter 10. Therefore, according to verse 22 here, they're all gathering back in Galilee. And now we've reached their destination of the city of Capernaum on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. If you remember from our previous studies, Capernaum was a significant city in our Lord's day. It had become his base of operations for his ministry. And while it had substantial connections with its Gentile neighbors, it was still a distinctly Jewish city. And as such, it was appropriate that the citizens of that city be taxed for the upkeep of the temple, even though Jerusalem was over 120 miles away. And because Peter and Jesus had been living in Capernaum, Peter receives a question about the temple tax. These officials specifically go up to Peter, and they ask him, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? It's kind of cowardly, isn't it? They ask this of Peter rather than of Jesus. Now, context within these four verses would suggest that Jesus had not paid the temple tax. So the tax collectors were right in pursuing this issue, but but you can kind of tell they're being cheeky by by coming to Peter, by asking their question about Jesus here. And note here that, that Peter is quick to defend Jesus. He immediately says, yes. He does so without consulting Jesus. To him, of course, Jesus meets his obligations. He he is a proponent of the law. He, He may not have gotten around to it, but of course, he will pay the temple tax. So let me just take a brief moment to explain what these tax collectors are asking of Jesus. And by doing so, it's going to provide some understanding for our next two headings here. Let me make sure that everyone understands what is being asked here is not a governmental tax but a religious tax. Now keep a finger here in Matthew chapter 17 and turn back to Exodus chapter 30. You can also see this in your worship guide. This is found on page 71 of your pew Bible. Originally, this two drachma tax was a mandatory offering to be given for the upkeep of the tabernacle. Now just to help you with some of the monetary uh, issues here, uh, of the offering that's being given to the, the, for the upkeep of the temple here. L- let me help you if there's a little bit of confusion. You might want to write this down. This, this kind of helps you to be able to look at it and seize it. Four drachmas make up a stator. Four drachmas make up a stator. One stator equals one shekel. One stator equals one shekel. Therefore, two drachmas is the equivalent of half a shekel. That way you'll be able to understand the monetary units that's being used here. The two drachma tax, or the half shekel tax, comes from here in Exodus chapter 30. 
Let me read this to you again. Exodus 30, verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garahs. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who's numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So according to this law, every man 20 years or older had to pay half a shekel of silver regardless of economic standing. We can see this census is taken later in Exodus chapter 38. It generated a significant income for taking care of the tabernacle. Now the ESV tries its best to give the full meaning of the text here. Verse 11 refers to this payment as ransom money. Verse 16 calls it atonement money. You could also translate the same word as redemption money. Both convey the idea that a payment is owed to a higher power to whom your life was due. Like verse 16 communicates, every Israelite owed their life to the Lord who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And there were certain obligations expected from the Israelites to demonstrate their faith and devotion to Yahweh their covenant-keeping God. Now remember, although the temple later replaced the tabernacle, this was the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where sacrifices were to be made in order to atone for the sin of the people that God commanded after the Exodus. If they broke the Lord's commands, either knowingly or unknowingly, they were expected to make restitution for it by making a sacrifice at the temple. It was owed to God, not as though the Lord needed anything, but as a means of demonstrating that you were sorry for your transgressions. In your sacrifice, you acknowledged, God, I was wrong here. You were right. And now for justice to occur, to be reconciled to you, I make amends with this offering. That is what atonement means. And the place you made your sacrifice was at the tabernacle and later the temple. Therefore, as part of the atonement, one was expected to pay this atonement money for the upkeep of the place where these sacrifices were to be made. They couldn't be made in just any old place here. They had to be done in the specific way and in the specific location that Yahweh required as a demonstration of your repentance to the Lord that he was right in all of his ways. This is how you demonstrated your love and your faithfulness to Yahweh. Now, I remember early in my marriage, Lisa asked me to clean our garage so that she could get her car inside of it. And I promised that I would. This was important to her. Our first little house was, was on an incline and our driveway leading up to the garage was pretty steep. At the time, Lisa was expecting Amelia. So no pregnant woman wants to walk up a hill, especially in the rain, when she could park in the garage and walk in through the back door. So I said I would get around to it. 
And for some reason, other things just became more important. You know, high priority issues like taking naps and watching Braves games. Well, that's fine and dandy until it rained. And so you can imagine, I needed to make atonement for my transgressions. I thought, hmm, flowers. She likes flowers. I will bring her flowers. But that did not appease the great and wise Lisa. Guess what she wanted me to do? That's right, exactly. Clean the garage. That's what she needed from me. And in the same way, God had a way that Israel was to demonstrate repentance. It was his way, and it must be obeyed. The people were obligated to maintain the temple so that these sacrifices could occur. Now, one slight confession I have to make here to you. I've checked so many sources, and I cannot tell how often this poll tax was collected from the citizens of Israel. Was it taken only once in a man's lifetime, or was it taken every time there was a census of the people, meaning a man might pay this tax every now and then in his lifetime? I tend to think it was the former rather than the, the latter here, that it was a one-time event. And these guys, they're trying to warn Peter here. You might want to keep away from Jesus. You know, he, he's never paid his atonement money. It was due five years ago, and so far, no payment. And Peter be, seems to be saying in his response, oh, but he will. He'll pay it. So turn back again to, to Matthew 17. So now, just after this conversation with collectors, Peter enters into the house, and Jesus immediately confronts him. The text says that Jesus spoke first. This seems to indicate that Jesus was supernaturally aware of the conversation that Peter had with the tax collectors outside of his house. So Jesus asked him a question here, verse 25. What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take their toll? From their sons or from others? Now, Jesus is using an illustration of typical government taxation. A king who is taxing his people should be doing so to provide good government and security for his people. But in providing this service, he would also have the right to ask for the citizens to upkeep his personal household. The king wouldn't tax his own children because they are a part of his household. The monarch's children are free from this obligation. And Peter acknowledges this to be the case in verse 26 when he says, from others. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. There is no obligation for the sons to pay because the family is providing the service to the kingdom. These five little words carry so much weight here. Jesus expects Peter to understand here what he's talking about, and perhaps you're a little confused as well. So let me explain it a little because Jesus is making a Christological statement about himself. Jesus is the son of the living God. He is under no obligation to pay the Father anything, not just because of the familial tie with God, but also because Jesus never sinned. There is no need to make atonement for his transgressions because Jesus never disobeyed the Father in word or deed. Think about it. As a sinless person, Jesus never had to make sacrifices because he was absolutely pure in his thoughts and pure in his actions. He owed nothing to the Father but love. Therefore, Jesus doesn't need to pay the atonement money because he is the Son of God and he never committed a sin. 
But the next instruction in verse 27 is a little curious here. He says, Peter, go get the coin from the fish's mouth and pay the tax for both of us so that we don't offend the tax collectors. Strange, huh? It is to me because Jesus seems to be implying that it wasn't necessary for Peter to pay his atonement money either. But Jesus is going to help him out and do so in a way as to not give offense. And why in his illustration did Jesus use the plural of sons in verse 26? Why not just refer to one son, the firstborn or heir? Then the message would have been crystal clear. Jesus isn't under obligation as the son, but everyone else would be. But Jesus uses the word sons in the plural, and he is including Peter through this miraculous catch. What is this about? Well, now we have our first clue as to the why Jesus is going to Jerusalem in order to suffer. We know he will. He told us so. So how will he save his people from their sins? I want to ask you, if you will, to turn to Romans chapter 3. Paul explains this very clearly there. Romans chapter 3. This is on page 941 of your pew Bible. Now, I'll help you before I read this to know that when Paul uses the word law here, he doesn't just mean the written rules, but he also is including our legal, legal obligation to obey the rules and suffer their consequences if we disobey. He is speaking of the total package, rules, rewards, consequences. So he writes in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul tells us we can't ever maintain the rules perfectly. All they do is show us where we don't measure up. And if that's the case, how will we ever obtain right standing before God if we keep falling short of the standard? But Paul reveals that God had a remedy planned for this all along, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And here it is, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For now there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Oh, how beautiful is that phrase between verses 23 and 25? It's one amazing, God-glorifying single sentence. Note the word redemption there in verse 24. In Greek, it is a simile to the word ransom that we saw back in Exodus chapter 30. And look at that word propitiation in verse 25. It means debt owed. Like a criminal who served out his prison sentence, we, we might say, well, he paid what he owed to society for breaking the law. This word propitiation is a simile for the word atonement that we read about in Exodus chapter 30. So how was the redemption obtained? How was the propitiation paid for for the believer in Christ Jesus? Verse 25, God put forward Jesus' blood to be received by faith. All of what was owed to God, every sin we committed that deserved his wrath was laid upon Christ. His blood paid for all of it. 
And the beauty is that once and for all sacrifice is still available for us presently. Paul goes on to write, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. No sin will go unpunished. No sin will go unpunished. We'll speak more about this later next week when we go over Psalm 5. Even our sins in the future must have restitution. God is not giving anyone a pass. But he is still just for every believer in Christ because Jesus has satisfied the sin debt owed to the Father. No taxes are owed for the sons and daughters of God. This is why Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, the place where sacrifices were made. He who was without sin was offering himself as the perfect sacrifice in our place. His blood would be shed for our redemption. He would die in our place. He would make a perfect atonement for sin. And he would be raised from the dead, proving the debt had been paid in full. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, it's, it's not clear whether or not, turning back to Matthew chapter 17, it's not clear whether or not here Peter actually went fishing. The text doesn't tell us. But if he did, and I kind of think he did, I know that Jesus doesn't send people on wild goose chases. I'm certain that Peter, unlike casting his familiar net, this time he threw out a single line with a hook on it, and a fish jumped on that hook, and when Peter took it off, he opened his mouth, and he found the coin just as Jesus said. Most likely, he took it directly to the tax collectors and said, here, this is for the master and me. Now, that would have been pretty cool, wouldn't it? If we were watching this on a video, right? We would say, wow, that's cool. That's amazing. First cast... You know, one line, fish, boom, mouth open, stator coin inside, the exact amount needed, rub it in the face of the tax collector. It's cool. But the more significant event was the day when Jesus dragged his bloody body up a hill, carried a heavy wooden crossbeam, and then he willingly, the Son of God, willingly laid down upon it, heard the hammering of spikes into his hands and his feet, and his cross lifted up, dropped into a hole, jerking his body against those spikes. This single, beautiful man, this man who was so loving and so kind, the kind of man let his life be interrupted by others, even though he was the king who patiently put up with a lot of failures from his friends, who traveled great distances to, by foot even, to other people groups to tell them about his kingdom. This beautiful, regal man had all of the wrath of God poured out upon him for yours and my sin. All in a single moment, causing him to cry out just before it snuffed out his life. It is finished. The sin debt is paid. 
And the proof that it was paid was the resurrection. So now as our intercessor, he says before the Father, this debt is paid in full for Peter. This debt is paid in full for Blair. This debt is paid in full for Willie. This debt is paid in full for Barbara Ellen. The wonder of it all. That's why he was going to suffer. That's why he was going to die. That's why he was going to be raised from the dead to pay the debt that we owed that we could never, ever repay. So one final word as we go into the new year. When I was a child, my father found this beautiful grandfather clock that he found at an antique store, and he bought it, and he put it in the hallway just outside my and my brother's room. And if you know anything about these clocks, right, they're beautiful, they stand upright, you know, and they chime on the hour, and when they chime, they always kind of announce themselves by going boom, 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 boom. And then they let out a chime for each hour that it is. So four o'clock, there'll be four chimes. Eight o'clock, eight chimes after that, and so on. The clock was absolutely beautiful. Sounded gorgeous, except around 11 or 12 o'clock at night. (laughs) Then it was an utter nuisance. And for the first few weeks, it drove us crazy. But then we got used to it. We were able to sleep through the night. In fact, we became so accustomed to it that we only paid attention to it when friends slept over and they pointed it out to us. And then we would notice its beauty once again. We had grown used to it always being around. After Christmas, is that your attitude towards Jesus? You've just grown accustomed to him being around to the point that you don't notice him anymore he's just become background noise if so then contemplate the gospel of your salvation go back and read Romans 3 again meditate on what it means when he says that you are free sons and daughters what was paid to make you a child of God Think on it until it just stirs your soul. And friend, if you are hearing this for the very first time, you can have relief of wondering whether or not God loves you or not. You can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that your sin has been paid for and that you now have peace with God, not just peace, but that now he could call you sons, daughters, his children. You don't owe him anything more because Christ has already paid for you. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we might be called the children of God. Oh, dear sinner, I beg you, this day after we celebrate Jesus coming in the world, do not ignore ignore his call to you this time. If he is calling you to himself, you come to Jesus today. You believe in what he's done on your behalf. You confess it publicly. You tell others about it. 
that I've been made free, free indeed. Every debt owed has been paid in Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, I don't know if my other brothers and sisters do this, but Lord, when I have these times when recurring sins pop into my life, maybe I lose my temper, maybe I get frustrated at someone, Lord, who I know you've commanded me to love. Maybe, Lord, I have impure thoughts. And there's this hesitation in such a moment to to think, oh, I've blown it again. And to think that I could hide from you. But Lord, the beauty of this all is that Jesus has paid every single sin debt owed to you. He has made it that we can approach your throne as your children. And because he has paid it all, we, we Lord, have been lavished this great love the same way that you love the Son, you love us because we now have the righteousness of Christ. There should be no fear in us. Ah, yes, but not fear of retribution because you love your children. And so, Lord, we pray that as your people, we would just become so impassioned about this truth that it becomes every day part of our living to to stop and and think about what Jesus has done on our behalf, that we would want to tell others, that we would want to proclaim it from the mountaintops, that our Jesus has paid it all. So, Lord, allow us to fall in love with you once again through your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in the atoning sacrifice, the once and for all atoning sacrifice of Jesus our Lord. Amen.